Let us pray. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may receive vision in this service. Open our ears, Lord, that we may hear what you have to say to each one of us. And open my mouth, Lord, that I may speak your truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you may not know this, but in the early 80s, I used to work for a firm of stockbrokers in the city. And every day I would walk past Threadneedle Street and see the Bank of England on my way to Gresham Street, where my office was. And it's an amazing building. Next time you go past, have a good look. Strong, fortified, windowless walls, not surprisingly, at street level. And can you imagine what the security must be inside, too? All to protect the precious money and a fifth of the world's gold that's hidden under London, worth an estimated £172 billion, so I'm told. That's 5,134 tonnes of gold that's in the vaults. If you like, it's the nation's piggy bank, <laughs> Uh, using uh, Keena's illustration. And this week, my wife, Frances, happened to witness some of the security protection when two armoured vans emerged from the Bank of England with an escort of police bikes and cars, all their flashing lights. And we can only imagine what was in them, what's tucked away in the Bank of England, and what was on the move at that time that was so securely being protected. Of course, it's important that the nation's wealth is kept secure. But it did remind me, and when I was talking to Francis, uh, we shared it together, that our hearts are a bit like the Bank of England at times. Our money is so important to us that we keep a tight grip on it. We secure ourselves to make sure that it's kept as secure as possible with property ownership, pension plans, ISAs, other investments, if we're fortunate enough to have any of these things, and allow just a small amount relatively of our wealth to be on the move. And when it is on the move, we do want to check that it's secure and it's going to reach its destination. And we give very carefully and we ask lots of questions about what we're doing with our money. Sometimes not as many questions about what we spend our money on as what we give our money to. We ask more questions about our giving sometimes than we do about our spending. And the question with this image of the Bank of England in mind is, are we secure vaults, or are we vulnerable, generous servants? Are we hard-hearted, or are we open-fisted? That's the illustration I'd just like you to have in the back of your minds. Now, I can still remember the BBC's Michael Burke in 1984 as he was describing that dreadful famine in Ethiopia. He said it was the closest thing to hell on earth. And people couldn't help being moved by those horrific pictures, and we've seen images since, of emaciated children that shocked the world. 
The conscience of a pop star was awakened, along with consciences all around the world, and probably yours and mine too, were pricked. And a year later, the lead singer of the Boomtown Raps stepped up. He decided to do something through Band-Aid, and he had a charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas?, and a supersized concert, a fundraising initiative, Bowie, Bono, Queen, and the like, Live Aid at Wembley, and in Philadelphia too, all to feed the world. And some of you will be able to remember those unorthodox words in the appeal from the now Sir Bob Geldof, who said, don't go to the pub tonight, please stay in, give us your money. There are people dying now, so give me the money. It was unorthodox, but it was a reaction to something in the world that prompted a lot of people to give. And we've seen so many fundraising incidents since. Band-Aid, Live-Aid, Soap-Aid, Sport-Aid, Net-Aid, Comic Relief, Children in Need, and we could go on. And they're all good. Today... Our epistle lesson was about what I'd like to call Paul aid or apostle aid. The passage is about a fund that Paul had set up. You see, Bob Geldof isn't the only one to have been moved by the plight of others. For generations, there have been people who've actually been cut to the heart by what they've seen and responded. The generosity uh, to their sisters and brothers in need when it's... Uh, the time was right. And at the moment, we know that there are situations that I know will be moving you. We've prayed about them in Syria, in Calais, in Italy, and there are many more. Paul Aid, as I'm calling it, was a fund that was initiated by Paul, and he was really passionate about it. It was one of his major activities while he was on his missionary journeys. And it was a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, and it's mentioned in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Acts, and it's hinted at elsewhere as well. And the reason for Paul 8 was that the church at Jerusalem was facing a great trial. It says they were living in evil days. There had been famine during the reign of Emperor Claudius. And there was great poverty. And the Christians in Jerusalem were amongst the poorest of the population. And Paul saw the need of Christians in Jerusalem and he was really moved by it. And he said, we must do something about this. And a collection began. It was an act of unity and respect for the Christians from both Jews and Gentiles for their sisters and brothers in Jerusalem. And our epistle lesson records Paul addressing the Corinthian church about the situation. It was the second time we think that he'd addressed the issue. Now, the church in Corinth had been quite generous and responded the first time uh, the appeal was made. They'd started off really well. They'd had weekly collections according to income. But their enthusiasm seems to have waned. And it's typical of all appeals that initially when there are emotive issues, we can respond and then we forget the ongoing need. Their response from a wealthy church was initially very good. 
But now Paul needs to remind them. And he addresses the issue with a none too uh, subtle reminder, if you like. It's a challenge to a church that was rich in many ways. The key verse is in verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in speech, in faith, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. The Corinthian church was blessed in so many ways. Paul says, but you need to excel not only in all the things that you've got. They were on a trade route. They were probably financially rich as well. But they needed to excel in the grace of giving. Paul doesn't say so. uh, But he was probably very conscious that they were very rich compared to others. And he needed to give them this reminder. Now, he doesn't lay down rules about giving. He doesn't come up with a fundraising action plan. There was no Band-Aid single, there were no red noses, there were no bring-and-buy stalls, there was no selling of personally signed epistles, there was nothing like that. What Paul does is he just challenges the church and he leaves it at that. And how does he do it? In a sense, he shames them with the example of the Macedonian Christians. Now, let me tell you about the Macedonian church. They were being severely tested in comparison. Verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They'd been subjected to real oppression from the Romans and injustice. They'd been deprived of their land's rich natural resources. They'd suffered civil wars as well. And before Augustus became the sole emperor, they were in a mess. In short, Macedonians' faith had been tested and they were poor. Yet because they knew of God's grace, all that they had in Christ still They had given purposefully, and it says with joy, to Paul's fund. So what Paul was saying to the rich Corinthian church is, look at what these are doing. It's welling up within them. They haven't forgotten. They go on giving. And in a sense, you'd think they were the ones that ought not to be doing it. What about you? So he sees a need in Jerusalem. He has Paul aid initiated. Don't don't use that in any other term. It's my name for it. Uh, Paul challenges a relatively rich Christian Corinthian church, and he shames them with the example of the giving of the poor. So I want to make three points this morning. Firstly, the Macedonian Christians gave of themselves, and they gave more than Paul could possibly have hoped for bearing in mind their situation. And there's two key words, sharing and service. In verse 4, entirely on their own, didn't need a big reminder from Paul, the Macedonians urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They counted it a privilege to help when there was a need. And their financial giving was an act of devotion. 
The Macedonians gave themselves to serve Christ, so therefore they gave themselves to Paul. And because Paul was concerned about this initiative, they were concerned and they gave to the people in Jerusalem. In verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of the Lord to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Their love overflowed with great cost but with great love. Remember the lady who gave the two small copper coins, uh, the poor woman in Luke 21? They'd, she'd given more than all the others. And they had done the same. They'd given out of their poverty, not out of their wealth. It's a common saying that it's the poor who help the poor because they know what poverty is like. So I want us today to think about we are in a relatively wealthy church. We're blessed with so much. Many of us here, uh, we might not think we come up with all sorts of reasons why we haven't got much, but compared to so many in the world, we are really blessed. Are we ourselves giving ourselves to Christ, giving ourselves to the needs that the church highlights and therefore giving ourselves to the poor of the earth. It's a personal thing. It's not a distant cause. Geldof was personally moved. And the call today is for us to allow ourselves to be personally moved. So, the second thing is the Macedonians gave freely. They gave of themselves and they gave freely. And that didn't mean it didn't cost them anything. Despite their poverty, despite persecution, they gave of their ability and beyond it. Unlike the Corinthians, they did it out of free will, with no kick or prompt. They were begging Paul. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Do you know, I find it is wonderful when church members come to the, the leadership and say, there is a need. We must do something about it. We are moved by it. As a church, we've got to do something. And that's how many projects within the church come about, not just because of church leadership, because members have a groundswell saying, we must do something. That might be for the ministry of the church here, or it might be out and beyond. They weren't given an assessment of how much to give. They weren't given a target, no quota of average membership. They were just moved. They were joyful, and they did it without grumbling. Wesley gave three simple rules. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. The trouble is, the more we have, the more we seem to want to obviously be good stewards of it. And when good stewardship kicks in, quite often we put well-argued limits around what we do with what we have. It's very interesting that there's been a lot of debate about Live Aid, for example. Some have said that it could be up to 20% of the money that was given found its way into the wrong hands. 
Therefore, should people have given to Live Aid? Now, there's a good argument there. And of course, we don't want money that's given to be uh, going to the wrong hands. The question is, to my mind, not should we have given. It's been what should we have put in place to ensure that the money have got there. That's the issue. The generosity needs to be in place. We can't all the time be saying we can't give because of this and we shouldn't do because of that. At the end, we end up doing nothing. We have to find intelligent, reasonable ways of being generous to ensure the money gets to where it's needed. But don't stop giving. Yes, ask questions. But don't become hard-hearted and so reasonable that we lock away what we have and only give of what's spare. Are we a vault or are we vulnerable Christian servants? There's an American historian, uh, a church historian called Leonard Sweet. And he reflected on the attitudes of key people in the scriptures throughout the history of the church. And he said, the world's a better place because an Oxford don named John Wesley didn't say, I don't do preaching in fields. The world's a better place because Moses didn't say, I don't do pharaohs or mass migrations. The world's a better place because Noah didn't say, I don't do arcs and animals. The world's a better place because David didn't say, I don't do giants. The world's a better place because Peter didn't say, I don't do Gentiles. The world's a better place because Paul didn't say, I don't do correspondence. The world's a better place because Mary Magdalene didn't say, I don't do feet. The world's a better place because Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. And the world will be a better place. If only you and I don't say, I don't do. The Macedonians had lots of reasons why they shouldn't have given. But they gave freely, open-handedly. And that is the challenge. And thirdly, and finally, and probably most importantly, we give because Jesus gave for us. And the Macedonians gave because Jesus gave for them. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Jesus was the Macedonian savior, and he was their inspiration. He had given everything of himself for them. They'd seen and been moved by his sacrificial love. And they were prompted to be generous. On the cross, everything was given for us. The Lord willingly submitted to persecution, injustice and suffering. There are all sorts of reasons why perhaps he could have said no. But he gave because of love. The Lord didn't hold back, even though others said, Lord, this must never happen to you. We sang that Henry Smith song. Now let the weak say, I am strong. 
Let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. And it's our thankfulness for all that Jesus has done for us that should just overflow from us. And sometimes it will almost be irrational, anti-intellectual, but it's heartfelt. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, I've been speaking about finance, but it's actually about the offering of our whole lives. It's a challenge to us not always to be reasonable, not always to be, have everything set in place. Sometimes we need to take risks. Sometimes we need to say, yes, we won't be able to protect everything, but what does love demand of us? It sometimes takes something like the Macedonians to challenge us. And around the world, there are Christians who have far less than us who are being incredibly generous. And some of you I know in this place, quietly, as is recommended in the Scriptures, give to the church and give to those in need with extreme generosity beyond what is expected. But the challenge to me and to others today is, will we let the message touch our hearts with the world in need today? I finish with a story from Nicky Gumbel of Alpha fame. He wrote these words, ultimately materialism is atheism. It is to be without God. If on the other hand we serve God, we must be indifferent to and unconcerned about money. Indeed, we should be materially satisfied since we are mere caretakers or stewards of our money, possession, intelligence, and looks. We break the power of materialism by generous and cheerful giving. And this is an act of the will, saying no to mammon and yes to God. Now that doesn't mean to say it's wrong to have wealth. It's how we look at it, what we do with it. Final story, Nikki tells this story and I make no apologies in re repeating it. In ancient Rome, the port of Pompeii in the year AD 79, among those who fled the torrents of lava erupting from Mount Vesuvius was a woman who sought to save not only her life, but her valuable jewels. With her hands full of rings and bracelets and necklets and other treasures, she was overwhelmed by the rain of ashes from the volcano and died. During the modern rebuilding operations near to the area of the buried city, her petrified body was unearthed in a sea of jewels. She lost her life to save her treasure. The question this morning is, where is our treasure? And is our heart with those who leave everything behind because of what's happening to them, whether it be through war, 
or earthquake. If we had to leave everything behind, who would look after us? I pray there will be the generous and the godly who won't be hard-hearted but would be open-hearted and open-handed and we would thank God for them as I hope they will thank God for us. Amen. Let us sing together. Behold the servant of the Lord, I wait thy guiding eye to feel, to hear and keep thy every word, to prove and do thy perfect will. We stand to sing.